It's time to clear the moral fog and encounter truth together. The fifth book of the Old Testament laid the moral foundation for the Jewish people, and as we approach Deuteronomy chapter 22, we discover that God is concerned about what we do with lost wallets or Toyotas in need along the road of life. He even cares about our sexual identity and the clothes we wear. Our Truth Encounter study leader, Dave Wurtson, begins with the issue of the lost wallet in our study titled, Who is my neighbor? Who is my brother? You ever found a wallet out in the playground? Find a wallet like this out in the playground and you go through it and there's no license in it, there's no identification in it. I mean, it is filled with $700 bills and $1,000 of cash in there and there's no identification. What are you supposed to do with it? Finders, keepers, losers, weepers, right? You're driving to Dallas. And on the way to Dallas, for driving wherever you want to go, you suddenly noticed along the side of the road that there's someone that's stuck. It happened to me last Friday. I was going to visit someone at the hospital. I came off 35. It was about 5.20 in the afternoon. I was trying to get across to Baylor. Uh, I took one of the ways that only Dave Wurtzen would concoct. And I came across on Harwood. I got between Harwood and Cedar Springs. Stopped at a light. My car went died completely, turned on the ignition, nothing. And here I was in the middle of downtown traffic. The cars were whipping around the, around the bend every time the light changed, and I had nothing. I just sat there. You know what else I noticed? Is I got out of my car and I put the hood up and pretended like I might know what I was looking for. <laughs> I noticed that no one stopped. Hardly anyone paid any attention at all. Very interesting. Everybody just went by. Now, I can see that a lot of those people might be saying, you know, after all, they should have joined the AAA. Well, I was a member of the AAA, and I could have called, but when you got a friend like Wally McWhorter, why call the AAA? I called Wallace, and Wallace took about six hours trying to find me in downtown Dallas because of the crazy directions we gave. wasn't quite that bad. But I really didn't need any help because I called home, and I, someone was coming to rescue me. But it was interesting to watch. Almost everybody came whipping around that turn and just whipped right around me and went right on. Hardly anybody stopped. Nobody stopped. Do you stop? Or do we say there, well, I'm glad I've got a good car. I'm glad my car doesn't blow up and not start like that. What about Michael Jackson? Before his demise, he's kind of fell out of disfavor for some very obvious reasons, but before that he was at presidential inaugurations and, and all kinds of things. Does it make any difference that it's really hard to tell because of the makeup that he wears? What about transvestism? What about guys and girls just swapping clothes? Does that make any difference to God? You see, God likes to talk to us about a whole lot of different subjects. Here's another one. Who cares about some pelican down on the marshes of Louisiana that might get oiled out by another oil refinery? Who cares about that? Who cares about ecological concerns? Maybe you're someone that says, you know, after all, the Lord said to subdue the earth. That's exactly what I'm doing. And God has a word to say about some of the ecological concerns that we might have. You just build a new swimming pool. 
and you got the hole in the back of your yard, you fill it with water, and you say, I'm not going to build a fence. I mean, it's my yard, it's my pool, I have the right to do whatever I want to do. Why do I need to build a fence around it? Does God care about that? And finally, one final thing, if I want to wear checkered red pants and a striped yellow shirt to my job interview at the bank, who has the right to tell me that I can't? I want you to stop and think about it. The ethic that our society lives under today, the dominant ethic in the secular world goes like this. I can do whatever pleases me. As long as what I do that pleases me doesn't get in the way or doesn't hurt your effort to find and to do what pleases you. The whole essence of the ethic of our society is I do what pleases me as long as it doesn't get in the way of what pleases you. In other words, I can do whatever pleases me. That was the ethic. It's a dominant ethic in our society, but it's not the ethic that they lived under in old covenant Israel. And I want you to stop and think about the difference between an ethic that says I do what pleases me and an ethic that lives for I must love God with all my heart and I must love my neighbor as I love myself. Now let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 22 and all the different situations breaking down, down in Dallas and, and losing wallets and all that kind of thing. You might not think God talks to us about that, but in Deuteronomy chapter 22, God, the king of old Israel, gets down to some very practical concerns that he wants his people to be aware of. Deuteronomy chapter 22 begins like this. If you see your brother, you got it? Deuteronomy 22, verse 1. If you see your brother's ox or sheep straying, do not ignore it, but be sure to take it back to him. If the brother does not live near you or if you do not know who he is, take it home with you and keep it until he comes looking for it. Then give it back to him. Do the same if you find your brother's donkey or his cloak or anything he loses. Do not ignore it. Now let's apply the ethic. What pleases me, what meets my need is what is important. And so I see my neighbor's cows are loose and I'm rushing to go somewhere, what am I supposed to do about it? I just ignore it, right? Because I've got other things to do. I've got other concerns that I need to meet. In other words, if you see somebody that's trapped along the road, you don't stop for them. You're not concerned about that. Because you're living for what pleases you. But what did God told, tell Old Testament Israel? He said, no. In Old Testament Israel, you were connected to your brother. You were connected to your sister. You were viewed as a family. There was a sense of community, like we talked about the last time we were together. And God says that if, if you find one of your neighbor's cows that are loose or if something's lost, you are not to ignore it. You are to go and get that and you are to take care of that animal, even an animal. You are to take care of a possession, even a, a coat or a jacket or something like that until the person that lost it comes looking for it. That's totally opposite than the idea of I do just what pleases me. I do what just pleases me. Instead, I'm to do what I would want someone else to do if I were them. That old principle of the golden rule, and you can see it right here in the Old Testament law, and what God is saying is that unlike the secular world, unlike the pagan world, God's children are to care for one another. 
This principle has not been abrogated. It hasn't been negated in the covenant of the new under the Lord Jesus. When Jesus instituted the new covenant, he didn't set us free just to do what pleases us. He's now set us free to really fulfill the intent of this law. So rule number one, practically, if we want to make an impact on our culture, you say, Dave, how can we, as people that believe in the Son of God, really make a difference in our culture? One of the ways that we can do it is to live so that when we find lost objects, when we find wallets, when we find clothing, a lot of you ladies identify with this, you know, you've got some friends, you know, your kids have, have other children that come over and they leave their stuff all over the place. The tendency is, man, I'm just going to take it all to the goodwill. Man, they don't have enough sense. Instead, almost every one of you moms, man, you collect all that stuff and you work hard trying to get all those winter jackets and everything back to the right place. You probably never stopped to think that as you were concerned about those lost garments and getting them to the right place, you probably never stopped to think that God in heaven was smiling. He's saying, that's the way I want people to live. That's an expression of my love. That's the opposite of someone that's living just for what pleases them, but instead they're living for their neighbor, for what will meet the needs of their neighbor. Another practical concern. Look what it says in verse 4. If you see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen on the road, just go on by. Life is a stressed out, hectic pace schedule. You've got deadlines to meet. Just ignore it. Don't help him get onto his feet. Just pray it doesn't happen to you, right? Some of you are looking at me kind of weird. Where is that translation? Notice it says, if you see your brother's donkey or his, or his ox fallen on the road, do not ignore it. This whole chapter is filled with don't ignore it. Don't be complacent. Go ahead and get involved. Help him get to his feet. You can see it in the ancient world. It's hard for us to identify with it. That's why I jumped to cars, because very few of you have brunk, broken down oxen. But if you've ever been in a culture where they use oxen to pull wagons and stuff, when an animal goes down, it's a real chore to get them up and to get them going. When they've said, I've had it, that's enough, I'm not going any further, they can just sit there. You talk about blocking block, you know, block traffic. I mean, they are really blocking traffic. The whole tendency, you know, is to blow the horn on your wagon and just go right around. God says no. In ancient Israel, they couldn't just blow their horn and go on. They had to stop and they had to help. As I was then in Dallas last Friday, almost everybody just whipped around. And I really wasn't that concerned about it because I'd already taken initiative to take care, to take care of my own situation. But it was interesting as I watched, now as I look back on it, as I've been reading this passage, hardly anybody even stopped to look. A lot of people just shook their heads and went whipping around when the light changed. Nobody stopped except one truck. Two guys stopped, and they reached out of the window, and they said, would you like us to help push you out of the way? And interesting enough, you know what? They were two black brothers. They were the only ones that stopped and asked this white boy if he needed help in downtown Dallas. And you know what? I turned on Channel 8 that night and they did not report it. <laughs> I mean, I was really waiting for it. I thought it was really happening. 
I mean, we have all kinds of demonstrations in Dallas and, and all kinds of antagonism, and you'd think that the whole city was burning up and, you know, total hatred for one another. So I turn on the news because I figured, man, there would be a, a lead story. White boys stranded in downtown Dallas in a very kind of a rough area of Dallas. And two black brothers stop and offer him assistance. Let's rejoice. You never hear that. But you know, it's important. That was a good thing they did. And I said, well, thanks a lot. You know, I've got a friend that's coming, but I really appreciate you stopping. They stopped right in the middle of a busy intersection. And they said, we'll help you push the thing out of the way so you can get out of this place where everyone's whipping around. They offered to help. And I don't care whether it's red and yellow, black and white. Deuteronomy is saying that's part of the kingdom of God. It's part of the evidence of the way God wants us to relate to one another. Just in a normal, everyday flow of life, those guys came around a bend and they made a decision. Here is another human being that if I were him, it would be nice for someone to want to help. When I first moved to Dallas, uh, Kenny that lives right across the street from me, uh, we would often drive together, and I remember when I first came and he was trying to give me the, showing me the ropes. Um, we remember one day we were going to Duncanville, and, and on the way to Duncanville, Kenny was telling me, now somebody lives there, and somebody lives there, and somebody lives there, and someone lives there. And I was flabbergasted, because for this New York boy or New Jersey boy, we didn't even know who lived in the house next door to us. And Kenny knew just about everybody, it seemed, from here to downtown Dallas. And I'll never forget, we were coming up on Main Street in Duncanville, and suddenly there was an accident. And right in front of us, Kenny slammed in the brake of his truck, pulled to the side, jumps out. He grabbed blankets out of the back of his truck. He grabbed a first aid kit, jumped out. He says, come on, Wurtson, let's get going. Come on, we got to help. I said, you got to be kidding, man. This New Yorker saying, you don't help. Man, it's a setup. They're going to sue you. Don't you know you don't get involved in stuff like that? Somebody else will call 911. After all, we got an appointment to make. What do you think we're on this trip for? Man, Kenny's already got the girl, you know, asking her if she's all right. He's got a blanket around her because she's kind of going to shock because she's cold. And, and man, he's already got the, you know, the ambulance is already on the way. Man, he's totally taking care of the situation. He was trained to do that. That's what the text is talking about. As, as old Texans, you have that. Why do you think you have it? Because there was revival across this state. There were circuit-rided Methodist preachers that went from one small community to the next. And there were old Baptists that moved on horseback from one town to the next. And they had mighty revivals that some of you have told me about. You remember when you were kids. And it developed a sense of community. We are God's children. We are in this together. We are not just isolated people. We cannot just do what pleases us. In fact, we'll drop what, it, what we're trying to do to please ourselves at a moment's notice if somebody needs our help. One of the things that's been incredible to me, sometimes it's been the unbelievers that have illustrated that more than anyone I've ever met. I've seen uh, deaths take place in a family and entire blocks of neighbors will come to the rescue, will gather in circular their wagons and come to help. We should rejoice in that. And what I'm underscoring today is we're not going to ever make an impact as God's children 
We can present the four spiritual laws and we can yell at people, you must be born again, and we can explain the gospel, and we can have radio programs and everything else. But if we don't do some of these simple, normal, everyday things in all of our lives, then we're not going to make an impact. And that's why Deuteronomy is so important. And I want to encourage you. I want to not just exhort you, but many of you, this is part of your whole life. You've been trained in this from the time that you were small. And maybe if we study Deuteronomy, it can kind of be a stamp that some of that training, that you don't let a broken down person just stay there stranded. You try to help. That if someone loses something, you do take that object into your care, whether it's an animal or a piece of clothing or whatever it might be, and you try to meet that need in your care. Thirdly, we change subject. The thing between men and women. Boy, the Lord likes to get down. Look at the next verse, verse 5. Now he changes gears. He moves all the way from talking about lost animals and broken down animals, and he relates to something completely different. Look at verse 5. A woman must not wear men's clothing, nor a man wear women's clothing. For the Lord your God detests anyone who doesn't. So let me translate this into the modern idiom. A woman if it pleases her, can wear whatever she wants to wear. If she wants to look like a man, if she wants to grow a mustache, if that is her thing, then let's not get in her way. I mean, Hatshepsut in ancient Egypt wore a beard and sat on the throne of Egypt. Man, if a modern woman wants to do that, so be it. All power to her. If a guy wants to wear eyeliner and he wants to wear lipstick, and he wants to put makeup all over his face, and he wants to to go to school in a dress, who cares? If that's his thing, if that's what pleases him, I mean, after all, it doesn't hurt anybody, it's fine. In fact, our whole culture is saying there really isn't any difference between the sexes. Now, the Christian community, among some of my very intellectual, highfalutin friends, is kind of sounding like the world sounded in the early 70s. And I hear a whole lot of talk among very academic, intellectual, so-called biblical scholars that there really isn't any difference between the sexes. And they go to Galatians, because Paul says in Galatians, in Christ, there's neither male nor female, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, and that means that in Christ, the, the difference between the sexes has presently been abolished. They fail to read all that Paul has to say about that particular area. It's true that in your relationship with Christ as a child of God, there's no difference between men and women. The Lord loves the girls as much as he loves the guys. And God loves the guys as much as he loves the girls. And when it comes to eternity, you're going to be in another dimension that we can even begin to imagine. I'm not exactly sure what you'll be. You'll have to wait till God surprises you. With the wonder of your creation, you're going to be dazzling like angels. And I don't know what you're going to be, but right now, right now, Paul says, Paul says right now there are still distinctions. He says in Ephesians that there's a role that a woman plays in a marriage and there's a role that a man plays. In the Corinthian passage, he talks about when the believers get together, that there's things that men should do and there's things that women should do. And Paul is very careful of some of the cultural norms that were present in that culture so that the roles of a man and the roles of a woman were acted out. 
In other words, Paul does not jettison. In fact, even when he argues for the roles of men and women, he goes back and argues Genesis chapter 2 and talks about Adam being created and then Eve being created. And he develops parameters for how we should relate. And one of the dominant things that Paul stresses is that there still is in this life a difference between a man and a woman. Now, most of you would say in a hearty amen to that. You know, it's crazy, you know, to think of, of any guy that would want to dress like a girl and vice versa. But I also want you to understand in all fairness, it's a very powerful thing that's sweeping our country. We have unisex everything. You should expect pagans to act like that. They don't have anything else to live for. What else do they have to do? So what do you do? When you want to party, when you want to have a good time, when you want to have Mardi Gras, you throw convention to the wind, you throw tradition to the wind, and the guys get dressed up like girls, and the girls get dressed up like guys, and you just party on the streets. And it's all just innocent, isn't it? No, it isn't innocent. I want to share with you, there's some mature men. There are some men that if they got dressed up like a girl, they would look like a total idiot because they have beards and they have big hands that are twice as big as any woman would ever have, and they have big feet and everything else. They're just men. You know, the essence. They have their cowboy hat on, they have their big boots on, and they just are men. And you know that they're men. There's also women. That man, the last thing in the world you'd ever think of, that woman being a man. They're feminine. Now, scholars argue back and forth about what makes that difference. But you know what? I think that as I talk to you about there is a difference between a man and a woman, I think every one of these say, yes, I know that. It's kind of obvious, isn't it? Only the academic people forget what's really obvious. But I want to share something with you. You know, the development, the development in becoming a man and the development in becoming a woman is a very fragile thing. And that's why God talks like he does. You see, God in the covenant community would have a little boy and his mom would really take care of him when he was a little boy. In old Israel, his mom would nurture him, especially those first two or three years. And they would nurse even for about three years, sometimes four years. You can imagine that. They would nurse for a long time. And that little infant in old Israel was really close to that mom. But you know what, as that boy started to be six or seven, more and more dad began to play a role. And that's where you have verses like, Fathers, when you walk in the way, and when you're sitting down in your house, and when you get up early in the morning, and when you go to bed late at night, you need to be teaching your children the law of God. And when a 13-year-old boy in old Israel reached that age, all the men in old Israel would gather around that 13-year-old boy. They'd have a meeting. In fact, you know what they did? I hate to tell you, girls, but they, they even separated it. If you were Jewish, you'd understand what I'm talking about. They put the guys in one area, and the girls would have to gather around in another area. They'd have to gather around behind them. God wasn't saying that you're not important. In fact, maybe, girls, he was telling you something that, that for a man to really become a man is a very delicate thing. It's hard for him to accept responsibility. And it's hard for him to decide, I will become a protector. 
And I will become someone that someone else can depend upon me if the Lord leads us into a marriage relationship. So in old Israel, recognizing maybe that male vulnerability and that tendency towards male passivity, all the men would gather around. And when a boy was just 13 years of age, which is right at the window, right at the window of manhood, in fact, if you think about it, I've, I've had 13-year-old guys like at camp, for example. It's often a joke at camp. Like, you know, you'll have skits. Often in skits sometimes guys will dress like the girls. And I've seen 13-year-old guys in a camping setting that look more beautiful when they're all dressed up in girls' clothes than some of the girls that I've seen at 13. In fact... A lot of the artists try to hang on to that amorphous, undefined stage of early adolescence. But that's a very delicate age, and God is being sensitive to that, and he says, in old Israel, the men gathered around a 13-year-old boy, and they did not dress him in women's clothes. You know what those men did? They went through a whole ceremony, and those men dressed him in men's clothes, in their culture, and they declared that 13-year-old boy is now a son of the covenant. And he is recognized among the community of men as an adult male within the community of old Israel. Under the new promise in Christ, God has placed his Holy Spirit in the hearts of those who receive the Son to remind us that wherever we might be or go, we have a relationship with a living God. He lives within. Therefore, we cannot just breathe the moral atmosphere of our time and do what pleases us. We need to do what pleases Him. We need to do what will meet the needs of our brother, our sister, our neighbor. I pray the Lord will use the last couple of teachings from Deuteronomy chapter 22 to reclaim the older, more precious moral standard Do unto others as you would have them do unto you.